Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to chasing the swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guess lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. All right, everybody. I am tickled pink because today's guest to celebrate week two of the annual Pediatric Dysphagia Awareness Month is none other than Ed Bice. He is 
one of my favorite, actually adult speakers. So, but we're having him in PFD month and I promise it connects, but Ed is fantastic. If you've never seen Ed talk at ASHA or at Shav, then y'all tune in. I got to completely geek out and be embarrassed because I really do love him and the uh, speech pathology gospel that the man preaches, but at Skisha, as well as our past crossed again at Misha for the Mississippi Speech Hearing Association. But Ed goes everywhere. So let me give you a little bit of his background. He's a speech language pathologist currently working as a clinical consultant for IOPI Medical. Love that. He has experience in various settings, including acute care, outpatient, home health, skilled nursing. He's heavily involved with Dysphagia Cafe. He's published documents there, published in peer-reviewed journals, and he's an adjunct faculty member with University of Maryland and East Tennessee State University for all things dysphagia. So, Ed, thank you. And he has the cutest granddaughter I've ever seen in my life. And I have to say, like, when he posts pictures of her on the land of the Facebook, like, oh my God, I wish we had a little girl to put hair bows in. But yeah, so hello, Ed. (laughs) Michelle, thank you for that. I won't disagree with you about my granddaughter. (laughs) (laughs) How old is she? She is 25 months. Oh, I bet she's a pistol because she looks so sweet in the pictures. I'm like, I bet she's sassy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. She's so used to getting her own way and because we all cater to her so much, being the only grandchild. So she certainly has an opinion and expresses it very well. Oh, God, I got two boys. And I got to tell you, that little one, the good Lord knew what he was doing, giving him to me second, because if he'd been first, he might have been the only. <laughs> so, like, uh, yes, yes. I say that as he's upstairs and it's not central and hiding next to my husband doing arts and crafts, because we were like, do not interrupt the mommy. We are in work mode. So uh, we shall see. Maybe we'll get a great surprise. And he'll contribute something (laughs) extremely valuable to today's discussion. I mean, he's definitely vomited in a couple of the episodes, but the editors have cleared that out previously. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the flu happens, ear infection, strep throat. If my kids get strep throat, I guarantee there will be emesis and projectile at that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we are on the other end of that. So no children living with us, just dogs. They can chime in, especially when we go into the learn more, do better, volunteer with your state association. We can all bark along and agree. (laughs) Okay, well, tell us how, because you're one of the few men in our profession, and it's always, God, I love that. So talk to us. How did you become a speech pathologist and then focus in on dysphagia? So it's really funny when people ask me about how I got to where I am in a I always kind of start out by saying, well, you know, I never really had a plan. Um, (laughs) (laughs) There was no roadmap. Right. It was so I've just kind of gotten on different trains and waited to see where they go and enjoyed the scenery along the way. My undergraduate degree is in deaf education. And I spent a number of years, uh, 10 to be exact, working in schools. I worked at a state school for the deaf. And then I worked in the public schools and I actually had a preschool, imagine me dealing with preschoolers, a preschool otitis media language delayed classroom. 
And that was a blast when I was young and had lots of energy and didn't have children yet myself. That was kind of what I was doing. And of course, with that, I worked very closely with a speech language pathologist who was just an amazing, amazing clinician. We did a lot of language intervention things, parents training. One of the things that she brought back from graduate school, remember, and this is in in the early 80s, mid 80s, we were bringing the parents in and videotaping them playing with their kids. And then we would watch the video with the parent and just do positive reinforcement and say, see where you modeled for them there? That's what That was really great to try to reinforce their positive behaviors to get the parents to be better role models for language development for their kids. It was lots of fun. This is the time of VCRs. This is not whip out your cell phone and then deep analyze a video that Absolutely. took 10 seconds. Absolutely. Labor intensive. Wow, that's impressive. So we had lots of fun working together. And and so after a, a number of years and after our first child being born, I started looking around thinking, you know, when I'm 60 years old, do I want to be doing this? But I love this whole helping people and working in the area of communication. So what could I do to branch out so that maybe I won't be sitting on a floor with four-year-olds when I'm 60? I looked around and speech pathology was kind of something that appealed to me. It was very close to what I was already doing, what my passion was. So I went back to school to become a speech pathologist after many thought processes. But at any rate, and then my last clinical rotation was at an acute care hospital. The hospital program was managed by a nonprofit speech and hearing center. So Mm -hmm. I saw outpatient kids, and then I could go over to the hospital and start learning from those individuals who work with adults. And so, you know, I was working with 12 speech language pathologists, just learning and soaking up everything that they had to offer. And the first time that I saw a modified beer and swallow study, my life changed forever because I hadn't had a course in dysphagia in graduate school. I didn't know the word. Wait, what? Right. I didn't know the word dysphagia when I graduated until I did this externship, you know, at the end of my graduate school. There was no going back after that. I was so fascinated by the ability to look at the physiology and to think about helping people be able to eat. And I am totally focused on physiology and rehabilitation and not about changing people's diets and food and all that kind of thing, except from the perspective of the patient and how food is such an integral part of our lives that it drives everything, every celebration, every event in our lives surrounds food, our culture, our psychosocial well-being, it all involves food. And so realizing the impact that helping someone get back to eating how big that was, there was no going back. So that's kind of where it started for me. My youngest brother was born with a cleft lip. He's technically my stepbrother, but Kesara. But my stepmom got was electrocuted when she was pregnant with him. She was changing the light switch out and like I guess her ex-husband hadn't like turned the wires off, whatever. Anyways, he was born with dysarthria. And he didn't talk till he was like four and a half and didn't talk until after he went to a speech pathologist. I remember the first time he answered the phone. He goes, hello, Ify, for hello, this is, we called him Ify, but his real name's Ethan. I was like, I was 13. I was like, that's it. I want to be a speech pathologist. And then, oh my gosh, we had our dysphagia class and my undergrad actually had a dysphagia class and it just clicked. It's hard to explain to people, isn't it? Yeah. It's like 
Sometimes you just need a literal sign that says, this is what you are supposed to do with your life. And I remember getting handed Jerry Logerman's book in the school, the university library back in the day when I am slightly older and grayer and Botox. So like we did not order books online. And so like I'm with you. I had the school library or the, the bookstore. I'm like, I remember getting it and thinking, I don't understand anything in here. And this is so cool because I was bored with like Arctic phonology and like, but like this, yes. See, if you too do not know how to transcribe the phonemic alphabet and pronouncing multisyllabic words are hard, never fear. You can still be a speech pathologist. (laughs) (laughs) Find your place. Find your place. Yes. Okay. So without both you and I getting up on a soapbox and or mic dropping, we're going to navigate the first question of the day because this is a biggie. I'm going to go ahead and put this out there. Y'all, the land of the Facebook, a tick of the talk, and how well you can bust a dance move does not ensure the accuracy of the information that you are obtaining when it comes to dysphagia across the lifespan. That is <laughs> that is the most genteel way I can say that because it's been a long day. So on that note, um, dear sir, competency is a little bit of an issue. And I frame this from all sincerity, like patient safety is what we're responsible for. But competency is an issue when it comes to evaluating and treating swallowing and feeding disorders across the lifespan. So walk us through Give us the why. I think it's multifactorial. Obviously, one of the reasons is the swallowing problems across the lifespan is the newest area, basically, of speech pathology. So we have the least amount of information, probably, as far as the smallest body of research, I would say, as far as years. And so we don't have a lot to draw from. And then when it comes to developing research, there are limitations in what we can do with people when it comes to eating and lungs and safety and lots of issues. So research is constrained by the very nature of the disorder. When I think about pediatric and feeding disorders, we can't just irradiate kids every day for the fun of it to learn about how they're swallowing and what's happening to them and the effects of different postures and different techniques have on them because that's just not okay. There's innate limitations in the profession of swallowing itself. I just interviewed the future Dr. Rachel Arkenberg. She's studying under Dr. Melandrecki at the Purdue I Eat Labs. She was last week's episode, and she was talking about even the ethical implications and the ethical barriers of like conducting RCT research on like infants and toddlers. And so, yes. I'm fully with you in that piece. Yes. Right. And that's why most of our research is on healthy normals. Yes. There's only so much we can extrapolate from dealing with healthy normals. I think about, you know, studies that say, well, this intervention didn't improve hyaluryngeal elevation. Well, it's healthy, normal people. Can you improve hyaluryngeal elevation in healthy, normal people? It's, or is it maxed out already? So it's kind of like, guys, we need to do better. But being a researcher myself, I understand that it's much easier to do research on healthy people because they're easy to find. They're less complicated. It's easier to follow up with them. Typically, there's no attrition in that group because they 
have gotten sicker or there's, you know, they've died or whatever reason. So you lose numbers in the cohort when you're working with six people. So to make it easier on you as a researcher and to keep your research clean, it's just easier to use healthy, normal people. So there's that limitation. And then because we're in the infancy, so to speak, although interestingly enough, 1972, George Larson was the first publication by a speech pathologist about swallowing. So we're at 50 years here, but that's still young when you think of other areas of our field and other areas of science. Because of that, we don't have enough experts to teach dysphagia or swallowing and swallowing disorders across the country, across the world. So consequently, people who are teaching dysphagia in the universities may not be able to share the best information with their students. I hesitate to tell a lot of stories because I think, who might be listening to this podcast? (laughs) But like you, I love stories. I love to share stories and tell stories. It's the reality and it's our experience. And so I won't tell where this happened or when it happened. I'll just say, I was presenting at a conference and an individual came up to me who is a professor at a university and said to me, where do you teach? And at that time, I wasn't teaching at the university level. And I said, I'm not teaching at the university level. And the conversation went on. And I said, you know, there's really only two things that I could teach. And that is anatomy and physiology and swallowing. Outside of that, you wouldn't want me to teach any other course because I would just basically be reading the textbook and regurgitating the information. Mm -hmm. And the comment that came back from this well-seasoned professor said, oh, well, that's okay, because I've taught, and I think he said, eight different subjects. And he said, and I don't know anything about any of them. So I just read the textbook. Yeah, I just read the textbook and say what the textbook says. I took a deep breath and just didn't say anything, which is very unusual for me, because I I really didn't know what to say. (laughs) But the reality is, that person is teaching a lot of people swallowing and swallowing disorders at their university. And I wish I could say that's unusual, but I don't think that's unusual. I think that that's quite common. I'm having a moment. So I was at a university and I have dipped my toes and I spent 18 months as the clinic coordinator and taught three grad classes as clinical assistant professor. And it was the clinic class. And I see the stress of having to put the big nine consolidated into two years, but I also see, and I've had this thought for a long time because I've been fortunate and blessed enough to literally travel coast to coast. Also, hello, Alaska. Oh my God. (laughs) I met Andrea and Rose and I got to meet, see my sweet friend, Mary again. And it was just like phenomenal and wonderful. Also Jennifer, hi, but anywho, From all of these different experiences, it's not just enough to know the content that you're teaching, but what I have found is that if you're also not treating and you're not clinically engaged, it's very difficult to just teach from a text or teach if you haven't done it in an extended period of time. I mean, for lots of reasons. One, because it's one thing to say, read this technique in a textbook, but then when you have a person sitting in front of you, it's a whole different world. So once upon a time, I was an adult clinician. I started out as an adult clinician and spent my first three years as an adult clinician. And 
having a patient with a rapid growing tumor on the side of his neck and over the course of six months going from the size of a dime to it actually being the size of a lemon before he passed and having it completely push his larynx. I mean, it wrapped around his carotid artery. He wasn't safe for surgery. His insurance didn't come through. He ended up passing because he fell through every crack in the system. And there I am two years out taking every course I can get my hands on, reaching out to every single person I can to mentor me. But he was not a textbook. He was a living human that was dying, actively dying in front of my eyes. And no amount of intervention was going to save him. And at the end, we just need quality. That's a soapbox. I'll behave now. I agree with you. And I think that I am all about the scientific evidence, 100%, and push it. And anyone who ever talks to me knows, you know, I'm quoting research and I'm talking about the evidence. Mm -hmm. But there is this portion of humanness that is so important when we talk about this disorder. I mean, I guess every disorder that we treat is the same, but we're passionate about this particular one. There's such a human element and the ability to have empathy and to have that emotion planted in your head to think about those patients that you couldn't help or that leave an indelible mark on your life, I think makes you a better clinician. Mm -hmm. It gives you a purpose to try to do better. Can I do more? What could I have done? And, And I still do that. I lay awake at night thinking about, oh, Mr. So-and-so, if I just know now, then what I know now, I probably could have made more of a difference. Not that I know everything there is to know by any means, but just the concepts that I know now are so much better than what I knew back then. So, I mean, I was the queen of all things, plastic vibrating and chewy. (laughs) So like, I look back on those patients and I'm like, good Lord, I vibrated them from here to Kalamazoo and back and that didn't work, but now I know why. (laughs) And and isn't it nice to have that understanding of, So now I know, I don't know a lot about what works, but I know a lot about what doesn't work and understand why it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think that's valuable. Yes. Y'all, some folks come with incredibly detailed notes and I'm like, I wish they were my professor. And that is Ed. (laughs) So like, (laughs) you're spot on. The caliber of what is being taught because of the limited access and the limited resources. That right. sets us for failure from the get-go. Right. And when we talk about textbooks, I have a large collection of textbooks. I have a large collection of books in general. And so I'm not anti-book. Mm-hmm. But when you think about the time invested in writing a textbook and getting it to publication, by the time it's in someone's hands, probably a lot of the information in there is outdated if it's didactic only. If it's case studies and that kind of thing, I think it's a little bit different story. But if, if it's just sharing of information... It's outdated. And the other thing is textbooks aren't peer-reviewed. Yes. I can tell you having written one, yes to the yes and yes. You know, so you can say pretty much anything you want to say. And I remember I was visiting a university doing a guest lecture and professors often get desk copies of books sent to them from publishers. Mm -hmm. A desk copy had come of a particular dysphagia book. So I just opened it and started looking through it. And I was literally laying on the floor laughing (laughs) about the things that were written in that textbook. I was so appalled. I mean, my children who have been raised in a household with someone who is passionate about treating swallowing and who has done it for a number of years, 
could have written a better textbook. And the credentials of this person who wrote the textbook sounded quite impressive. But at any rate, so if we have someone who's simply regurgitating textbook information, that can be very dangerous if they don't know what they're doing. So we have all these barriers to competence when we're in our training. And then I could go into great detail about my concerns about the way that we're trained. You talked about that we have two years to learn. And how in the world is two years ever enough? Why is this not a six-year program from the beginning and you don't stop until you get a master's degree, kind of like a physical therapy doctorate, that you just go so that we could get foundational information rather than just learning about disorders and saying, here's a bunch of treatments, throw them at someone and see if it sticks. Because that's all you have time to do. When you have to cram all the big nine into two years, you don't have time to understand the foundational why, which is the question that makes a difference. Yes. You just know everyone has decreased hyaluronic elevation. Every modified Barron's Follow study I've read for the last 10 years, every patient had you know decreased hyaluronic elevation. So apparently there is no normal hyaluronic elevation, but it's because... We don't have time to know what normal is, and we don't have time to teach critical thinking. It's okay. In my world, everybody's got a tongue tie. And, you know, if you just cut it, they're going to latch perfect. So, like, you have a tongue tie, you have a tongue tie, you have a tongue tie. (laughs) It's like Oprah at Christmas, right? Yes. That's what I think of exactly. (laughs) But the problem is, because we aren't taught foundational information, we just gravitate towards a technique that is easy, the easy button. My students in their, our discussion groups, online discussion groups, they're constantly asking me, why do SLPs do this? The only two answers I can ever get is one, because they don't know better. And two, because mm-hmm. it's easy. We default to whatever is the easiest. If it's vogue to have tongue ties and easy to blame it on something that someone else can manage, then we just do that. And it's the same thing with with adult dysphagia. It's decreased hyaluronic elevation is the evil of all evils. And so Let's just say that and people will think we know what we're talking about. Base of tongue retraction. That's the other one I heard all the time. Base of tongue retraction. And I'm like, (laughs) but is it? But is it? (laughs) Right, right. And so we come out of school without the preparation that we need or the even the foundation that we need. We're not teaching people how to think. We're teaching them what to do. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge difference in doing something and thinking about something. That's why I like to have conversations with people like you, because it makes makes me develop more questions. Usually when I speak, I start out with this pie graph that says, so let's talk about where I'm coming from. And the pie graph has a little sliver in it that's like probably 10% of the circle. And it says, here are the things I know. And then maybe another 40% is here are the things I know I don't know. Like... I don't know how to treat patients with ALS who have dysphagia. I know I don't know that. If I get a referral from one of of those patients, I'm going to refer them to someone else. Even though I focus only on dysphagia, even within that realm, I know there are things I don't know. Mm -hmm. And then the other 60% of the pie graph is, here are things that I haven't even learned that I don't know. (laughs) Because I know the depth of the human being is way beyond my ability to begin to comprehend. But until we get to a base of realizing that what we know is very little of what there is to be known, then it doesn't create a thirst for knowledge. And therefore, we have this pseudo-competence. And we tell ourselves that we have this competence, 
that really we don't have because we're, I think it's a protective mechanism to some degree. And that's so dangerous for our patients. A dear friend of mine who you actually know, she works in a hospital and highly skilled, actually up in your neck of the woods, highly skilled, has a younger, greener clinician. And as her partner in therapy land at the facility and regularly sends out for aggressive care when the patient is clearly hospice and when instrumentals need to be called, doesn't refer for instrumental evals. And it's resulted in a patient's death. And she is utterly beside herself and deep down in the muck and the mire and walking in a valley. She's like, I bring this up. I reported it. Nothing's changing. Nothing's happening. She's like, this is a patient safety issue because she thinks she knows. And she can't even wrap her brain around the fact that she doesn't know. But isn't that Facebook land? Yes. Oh God, that was a, I jumped out of my chair. Yes. <laughs> That's somebody ask a question and then everybody jumps in and we're like, oh, you should do this. Or my favorite is the peds or a facial. And it's like, well, clearly look at all these tethered tissue issues here, here, and here. And I'm like, did you see the eczema on the child's face, the giant rash, or like the bags under their eyes that indicate, you know, red flags for underlying allergens, and we should probably get this ruled off? Or did you actually listen to the audio on that video and hear the laryngomalacia, trachomalacia, bronchiomalacia, red flags, and we should see ENT? And, mm-hmm. The land of the Facebook. This goes back to something else that I, when we were exchanging emails, this concept of bottom up. And I don't know if that meant anything to you just in my words, but we see what we're looking for. So if you're looking for tethered tissues, you see tethered tissues. If you're looking for decreased hyaluronic yeah. elevation. So my philosophy always is walking into an assessment, whether it be a clinical assessment or a imaging assessment with, I don't know anything. And so I start with no theory unless I've seen the patient for the clinical assessment myself and done the cranial nerve exam, then I've started creating some thoughts in my head based on that. But I went into the clinical with no theory because I think we see what we're looking for. And if we go in not looking for anything, but just letting the information come to us, we can serve our patients much better than walking in thinking that we know something. So, you know, one of the very funny things that I tell my students is, so I've been doing this for a long time, you know, longer than they are old. I say, so every time that a new client sits in front of me, whether it be for treatment or evaluation, the first thing I think to myself is, what the hell am I doing? I don't know anything about this. And I talk myself then to say, okay, well, let's just start what you know and see if you can figure something out. But I never start with the base of, oh, I know how to treat swallowing or I know how to evaluate swallowing. And that, you know, and so I'm the superhero and they've come to the right person. I never start with that mindset. I always start with the mindset of, I know nothing. And so let's start building with one block at a time to see if there is something here that we can figure out together. That's a very different approach than running in, screaming, saying, I'm here to save you and I know how to fix you. Mm-hmm. That's why we don't develop better critical thinking skills and competence because we think we have the answer already. And I think that's a very dangerous place to be. And, and the very interesting part about all that is, is there's a wealth of research about self-evaluation and self-assessment. 
anytime like I wake up in the morning and I start feeling superior to someone else, like I've read some post on Facebook and I think, oh, I'm so much better than them. I go back and look at this data that how bad we are at assessing ourselves and our own skills. (laughs) And interestingly enough, there's an inverse relationship in the literature between confidence and competence, that the most confident people are the least competent and the most competent are the least confident. Wait, say that slowly because I'm a visual learner and my brain's trying to play catch up. Okay. The most confident are the least competent. Yep. And the reverse as well. Yes. I would say that that is accurate based off of nothing more than just watching the way the world works. But I'm glad that there's evidence to support that gut hunch. <laughs> it's been studied in lots of fields, but the, you know, of course, I'm most interested in healthcare in the healthcare field. But it's proven again and again. There's a really interesting systematic review published in 2014 by Sears et al. And it validates this concept in the systematic review that over and over again, the research keeps telling us that people who assess themselves that they're very good at what they do are the least competent. That's pretty dangerous. And I think that spills back into this whole concept of clinical judgment. I say very nasty things in my head when people say, well, it was my clinical judgment. There's this host of demons that pop up in my head that start saying really ugly things. When you meet Ed, he's tall, he's slender and fit, and he has a bow tie, and he's a very dapper looking gentleman. And so like, I'm just imagining you with like the Donald Duck and Daffy angel demon on either side of your head right now. It's just... Oh my God, that's great, Ed. Um, You know, and I have to refrain from saying what I'm thinking in my head when someone says that. And I understand that that experience is part of the evidence-based triad. But experience is about what you've learned and the information that you've collected along the way. It's not about how many days you work. And it's not about some sixth sense or gut instinct that you have. It's really about data and information that you've learned along the way. That's experience, not just the fact that you've worked for 20 years. Dr. Humbert would say some people work the same six months their entire career, so they only ever have six months (laughs) of experience. Right, that's a great quote. (laughs) And I agree with her. And so we can't just say, well, we have to use our clinical judgment, or I learned that, or I know that based on my clinical judgment. No, your clinical judgment has to be based on something, not just your inner feeling. I have this data or this information, and I learned this from working with these kinds of patients. I've learned this from sitting through this class with the GI docs. This is what I've learned to bring to the situation. And when you are using your quote-unquote clinical judgment, you have to be able to provide a rationale and explain why you think what you think. The why. That's why I love your book, Chasing the Swallow, because it's all about the why all these complex cases, but it boils down to, well, here's why. Here's why the kid was like this. And that's exactly what we need to be doing in our profession is drilling down instead of just looking at the surface, because we're never going to become competent clinicians unless we keep asking why. Yes. Oh, I'm straight up crying now, but that's why we do this because every case is different. And my struggle, my struggle is that 
folks get taught this is how you do an evaluation and this is how you do the treatment and you do that for every single child, but we're not taught again to go back to the big nine covered in the two years, but we're not taught how to take into consideration the original etiology that brought that patient to you, much less the comorbidities that go along with that original, or God forbid that they have subsequent, like you have one primary etiology, like a CVA, but then you have a traumatic brain injury because you have unilateral hemiparesis and then you fall and then you have this, or you have this diagnosis of Down syndrome, but that increases the likelihood that you're going to have pediatric leukemia. And then you do have pediatric leukemia, but now you're going under radiation and chemo for the treatment. All of this is going to compound in the medications. You could simply have medication-induced dysphagia across the life continuum if you don't know the effects of GERD and or seizure medications and what they can do on the whole organ systems, sphincter to sphincter, and how it's all interconnected. Within dysphagia, I have several specific interests. Besides competence and ethics, I love talking about mastication and I love talking about aspiration and pneumonia, the connection between those two things, because there is no obvious connection between those two things. Because we know from many, many studies that aspiration alone in the adult population does not cause pneumonia. When you talk about medications, it just started sparking all of these things. So you have some kind of bronchial infection, and I put you on, and I'll say, penicillin. And one of the side effects, it's not a common side effect, but it is a side effect of penicillin, is pneumonitis. And so you do a chest x-ray on somebody who's on penicillin, and it looks like they have aspiration pneumonia. Wait, I didn't know that was a side effect. Yeah. There are lots of antibiotics that will cause pneumonitis inflammation in the lungs, as well as like beta blockers. And how many of our adult patients that come to us are on these kinds of medications? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. then we get this chest x-ray and we start making all these assumptions about why the chest x-ray looks that way. When in fact, the specificity of a chest x-ray is only about 77% and the sensitivity is in the 60s. And we're making diagnoses off of chest x-rays. And so then we take them to fluoro and they happen to aspirate. And so then we say, oh, well, that's aspiration pneumonia. We know that because they aspirated under fluoro or under fees, and that's aspiration pneumonia. When in fact, we know that according to Butler et al. 2018 and her normal cohort of over 200 individuals, that 18% of those individuals aspirated and they were healthy, normal people who walked in off the street. That's my goose. I'm sorry, my nine-year-old regularly coughs, spokes, and sputters. Like, I know the kid's aspirating on water, and like, anytime he gets a big swallow, it's... And one of my students one time was like, but it sounds like he's aspirating. And I'm like, he is a totally, typically developing, healthy person, and we all do that. It's just... He's also has a flair for the theatrics. So if we have a little bit of flash penetration, he's going to play it up when there's a chick around, especially a hot grad student and he's nine years old. <laughs> so like. <laughs> but, you know, the problem is we don't have baseline modified barium swallow studies or fees on everyone. So we don't know what their swallow look like before their stroke. So we assume that everything that is on, on the fluoro is be related to their stroke. Because, you know, the funny story of me going to the University of Florida and participating in a research study, and I'm sitting in the chair doing my thing in the research study, and I'm under fluoro, and I'm watching myself swallow on the screen, and 
a significant portion of one of the boluses went into my airway as I'm sitting watching myself swallow. And and I said, the only reaction I had was, I just aspirated. I I mean, I said, (laughs) who knew? Who knew that I'm aspirating silently from time to time and I had no knowledge of it? I want to see myself on fees because every time we've tried to do a fees, I broke, I broke, and I broke my nose in college waiting tables. A lady bent over and the door bounced off of her bum and it came back, but I was working at a Ruby Tuesday. Don't advise that. And it came back, smacked the tray and I had hot tea on it and I didn't want to get like burned. And so I like moved really quickly so it wouldn't hit the tray and burn me and the whole thing. And I took the full force of those swinging restaurant doors to my nose. Oh my. Ever since then, it's been really hard to pass a scope through my, my turbinate. Because no, I'm sure. <laughs> it is. But like, I really, really, really want to see what's going on in there. And so if somebody's out there and would like to run a scope in my nose, I'm game meet me at Asha in New Orleans. <laughs> great, great. Yeah, I can hook you up probably. So you were the victim of bend and snap, basically. <laughs> um. <laughs> For those of you that did not get the reference, y'all, that's legally blonde and you need to go back and watch it. <laughs> okay. Um, but, yeah, we digress, right? Um, but but yeah, I've been scoped many, many times. And interestingly enough, I have not aspirated on fees, but I, I did aspirate on fluoroscopy. My epiglottis doesn't invert unless I swallow a heavy bolus. Obviously, I have a little bit of problem with laryngovestibule closure, but most of the time it's it's fine. But, you know, I say that to say... If I had a stroke and went to the hospital and I coughed and someone did a modified on me and saw that, they would think that that was new, a new pathology in my swallow and start trying to treat me and put me on, you know, modified diets, et cetera, et cetera. When the reality is I've been swallowing that way probably my whole life. Mm -hmm. But again, it goes back to this having all the pieces of the puzzle are as many as we can gather and not just looking at aspiration as a single event and that that meaning something or having any kind of meaning really at all. But that goes back to competence because if you don't have the knowledge of the ability of the lungs to manage invasions and you don't understand microbiomes and you don't understand the normal range of swallowing, then you react in the moment, which can be quite harmful to our patients in, in lots of ways because we know that altered diets cause things like dehydration. It can interfere with medications. It can interfere with glucose levels. Certainly that texture altered diets have fewer calories and nutrients than regular diets. When you become malnourished, of course, you're susceptible to everything, every illness. And so I think of that too much because we don't have enough knowledge and enough competence. We don't realize the ramifications of our decisions and what we're doing to our patients. We just think, I'm saving them from aspiration because this is my noble cause. And we don't look at the person who is much more than a larynx. Yes. We stop at the UES. It's almost as if I have a running joke with the OTs that I work with. And I'm like, oh, baby, that is too far below the clavicle for me. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, they start talking about like positioning and flipping children and sensory regulation and like, 
I don't want to drop a child. So like, I'm going to let you flip and do the thing. And then thank you graciously that we are now in a more regulated state to engage in more like advancing of viscosities and those kind of things. But you know, and I know how like posture affects the way that yeah. those kids swallow. And we do have engagement below the clavicle. Esophageal dysphagia can present as an oral stage dysphagia if you do not engage in competency to chase the swallow all the way down to where it enters into the stomach on an instrumental swallow eval, which is a conversation for another day, because how many modifieds actually follow the bolus all the way to the stomach? Right. Circling back. So I think that because the last year and a half or right before COVID hit, one of my the things that I promised myself was every time that I got a chance to speak that I would be on this mission to talk about the foundations. One of the first things that we come out of school without a good understanding of anatomy and physiology. And until we have a good grasp on how things are supposed to work, how do we identify when they're not working properly? Mm-hmm. One of the first steps in gaining confidence is to go back and learn anatomy and physiology. Don't just memorize it, but learn it. I say to my students, so open the mouth, get out your pen light and look at the soft palate elevation. Okay, so why did we do that? So we could check a box. What was the purpose of that? So, okay, so we have a problem with soft palate elevation. So what cranial nerve could that be? Okay, well, it could be 10. Okay, well, what other... Swallow physiology is dependent on the accurate performance of the vagus nerve, you know, and you get these blank looks. Dude, I'm pulling up cranial nerves in my head while you're talking, going like, I knew that was the vagus nerve, but Michelle, speed up, girl. (laughs) But, you know, and I say you took anatomy and physiology, right? Yeah. Well, Mm -hmm. there was a reason why you took anatomy and physiology. So now let's figure out the reason. Well, you know, pharyngeal squeeze, the pharyngeal plexus, which is nine and 10, right? UES opening is 10. Mm-hmm. laryngeal vestibule closure, vocal fold function, all of these are 10. So if we look at the palate and we see an impairment there, we have to start questioning ourselves, well, what else isn't working? Yeah. yeah. You know, but if you don't know the connection between all of the anatomy that 10 innervates, then you can't do that. I start going down, do they have nasal regurgitation? Do we have... You know, if they're having an issue there, do they have a submucous cleft? Do we have a genetic condition? That's what syndrome is cooking. Like, that's where my head is. Right. See, because you work in the world of syndromes, right? Right. Yeah. But you're connecting the dots. And that's what this base of knowledge and really knowing it allows us to do. Whereas if we just think tethered tissues, that's all we think. There are folks right now that are listening. They're like, yes, I remember anat physiology from a lifetime ago, but it's gone. So who do you recommend? There is an excellent book, you know, and I don't get any kickbacks from any book. So just know that, you know, my only financial disclosure is that I work for IOP Medical, right? So that is written by Dr. Bonnie Martin Harris. It's available through Northern Speech Services. And it's an accompaniment to MBSIMP, but it's not necessary to do MBSIMP to get this book. And it has fluoroscopic images and it has the most amazing drawings and it has charts based on the physiological process of which muscles and which cranial nerves are involved in that physiological process. What? It's organized so beautifully and the illustrations are amazing and it's not that expensive. This is the book that I make my graduate students buy because I'm like, so guys, this will serve you for a lifetime. 
get, you know, where a textbook is already out of date by the time I ask you to buy it, this book will serve you for, for a lifetime. That's honestly, that was all my to-do list because eventually test anxiety word, I want to sit for my BCSS exam, but I want to take the MBS IMP class beforehand because I'm not in facilities that do instrumental swallow evals, but I know I can do better. <laughs> I keep this on my desk as a reference. So if I have to start thinking, then I'm like, oh, just look in the book. Just look in the book. I love my books. I got my drugs and dysphagia books. Oh, yes. I actually met the author and I had him sign it one time at a conference. <laughs> and like, I have this little collection of signed textbooks. And it's really funny when my students are like, you met them. I'm like, that's how old I am. <laughs> That's amazing. But I think that's the beginning that, you know, because how can you build on anything if you don't have the right foundation? So anatomy and physiology, like I said, this has kind of been my mission to talk about building a foundation. And in my slides, it has the classic iceberg picture with the tip being above the water. And the tip is what we do, but the iceberg is what we should know. And that's supporting what we do. Besides anatomy and physiology in that iceberg, are understanding the principles of neuroplasticity first and foremost, because everything we're doing, we're trying to change the brain because the brain sends, you know, the message through the nerve to the muscle. The muscle is only doing what the brain is telling the message that the brain is sending to it. Mm -hmm. Muscle isn't an independent operator. So ultimately we have to change the message getting to the muscle from the brain. So we have to know the principles of neuroplasticity. And when we sit down in a therapy session, we have to start ticking off those principles, are they built into the things that we're doing? Repetition matters, intensity matters. The system isn't going to change unless it knows that there's a need for change. But we have to make sure that we're incorporating those principles of neuroplasticity into every treatment, whether it's no matter what we're treating, because we want to change the brain. And then we have to consider the principles of exercise science. Giselle Carnaby, 2013, what is the usual care of dysphagia for dysphagia in the United States. And her question was, how many interventions are clinicians using that are actually exercises? And 254 therapists responded to the study. I could talk about the study all day, but the end game to the answer her question was 13% of the recommended interventions were actually exercises. So, mm. because we don't know what an exercise is. And I'm like, don't you think someone who calls themselves a therapist should know what an exercise is? No, because people do that, stick your tongue out, move it up and down, and there's your exercise. That's right. And what the purpose of an exercise is, you know, that's the other key. But again, it's about teaching kids to think. I know I would get, did a guest lecture in a class and I was talking about this particular article and I knew that the students had read that article. And I said, so you read the article? Yeah. And I said, so what percentage of the interventions recommended were exercises? And they knew 13%. And I said, okay, well, how did she make that determination? What is the definition of an exercise? That's exactly what I heard. Nothing. That's right. I say that's crickets. Yeah. Yes. And I said, you're not learning if you're reading information and you don't know what it means. If you don't know what something means, ask or investigate. Don't just say, mm -hmm. oh, how silly. Only 13% of speech pathologists were recommending exercises. And then you go on your merry way and do the same thing because you don't even know the definition of an exercise. That's why IOPI is different. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yes, it is why we're different. Understanding exercise principles. We could talk about the neural underpinnings of force and force generation and how we're not really looking in our field for hypertrophy in the muscles. We're looking for realignment of the motor neurons, but you have to follow those 
exercise principles and you have to do it at high intensity, according to the literature, to improve Mm -hmm. force generation and realignment of motor neurons. And so we could talk about that all day because I find that really fascinating. Can you come back and we can do it one about, I mean, I know you work for them, but can we do another one about specifically IOPI? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. I know there's folks that listen that also treat adults, but I also know that there are pediatric cases. I mean, PEDS goes up to 18, but there's cases where that would be clinically indicated based off of the type of deficit that the patient has and their cognitive ability. Yes. The feedback that it gives is so powerful. And I have some publications about the benefits of biofeedback. So yeah, I'd love to come back and talk about those things. The last thing is motor learning. There's this assumption in in the literature that swallow deficits are related to weakness. And that's not always the case. It can be range of motion. It can be discoordination. It can be mistiming. It can just be the motor plan is off. And Dr. Huckabee and Dr. Humbert introduced these concepts into our literature. And I think that it's so powerful to start thinking about movement. Physiology is movement, and movement requires motor learning to shape a new movement. And there are very specific principles of motor learning that we have to understand because we, as of all the disciplines, should understand things like apraxia. It's a motor planning issue. We should be able to say, oh, yeah. You know, neurologically, we know for working with this system that there are motor planning issues. If you don't understand how to change a motor plan and things like block practice versus random practice and the differences in which one is better and which one gets better outcomes and things like perturbations and targets. And if you don't understand these concepts, what are we doing? We're just marking off days. Okay, folks, this is why if we teach a patient to chew on a plastic stick, They do it in isolation. Congratulations. You have taught that. However, when you understand these concepts and you understand and we pull in central pattern generators, we we get how that does not teach a little one how to control a bolus, how to manipulate the bolus to time out respiration and deglutition. Right. Because we know only the neurosubstrates engaged in the activity being taught are going to change. And if you're just yeah. chewing on a stick, then you're changing the neurosubstrates to chew on a stick. Yes, but not to actually manipulate and control the bolus. And again, this is why we have had Dr. Georgia Mellendrecki from Purdue IEATS Lab on and her protege, future Dr. Rachel, on last week because this is crux, this is key. And also they're so freaking cool. I could have geeked out listening to the journal articles. And I love it when you, when like you talk about the journal articles, I'm like, oh, I want to read that one. (laughs) Oh, how do I get that for free? (laughs) So I I have to tell you, Dr. Melendrock is one of my heroes. I I say heroes in the faith, right? The faith that we have a hope that we're going to be able to learn more and do more for our patients. Dr. Melendrocki has actually looked at, you know, fMRIs and looked at the results of interventions on how it have actually changed the brain. She's an amazing scientist. And a clinician. She does research to practice, baby. And I think that's amazing. I just have to tell you this story of the first time that I encountered Dr. Melandraki. And Jamie, her wife, knows the story too, because I tell Jamie, her wife, I say, you know, you just don't know how much I love your wife. I was at a conference and she, in the morning, she presented on reading functional MRIs. And as you know, she's done, she has carried on Dr. Shepard's work and working with children with CP. And 
she talked about, you know, looking at functional MRIs. And I sat there all morning fascinated thinking, wow, I wish I knew how to read functional MRIs. And I wish I understood what all this meant, you know, and just in awe of everything that she knew and could talk about. And then that afternoon, she was on a panel in a panel discussion. And someone in the audience asked something about, said something about, well, does a differential diagnosis really matter? You know, I mean, if the kid has CP or if it's some other neuromuscular disease, does it really matter that you get a, a differential diagnosis or is it just that you're going to treat the symptoms and, and went on and ask a detailed question? I'm being a little bit flippant about how they asked the question. It was a very thoughtful question. But Dr. Melandraki paused before she answered the question. And she said, so I want to take you back to that. First of all, we're talking about someone's child. Yes. That this is not a subject. This is a human being. And these parents had a vision and dream of what their child would be. Yes. And when this child was born, they had to give up all of that and develop a new paradigm in their heads about how to nurture this child and what the dreams for this child would be. And any information that we can give them to help them shape that image, there's no value that you can place on that. It's priceless. And she started crying while she was talking about this. Mm. I started crying, listening to her passion about taking care of human beings, at knowing how brilliant she was. We've become acquaintances and chatted a whole lot since then. And I love her to death. And she might have thought I was a stalker at that point in time. Because I walked up to her and I said, I would follow you to the end of the earth. <laughs> if that was my first time meeting somebody, I too would have a misgiving. <laughs> I said, someone who is so brilliant, but cares so much and has so much passion and empathy for people. I said, do you realize what a rare combination that is? And I said, you are a unicorn and I love you. (laughs) I don't say that to most people the most first time I meet them, but I did to her. (laughs) But that's what should motivate us. That's what we should wake up and want to do. We are called to serve the least of these and to train the next generation, whether it be academically or clinically. And so that behooves us to, as my grandma would say, to get our ducks in a row. (laughs) Also, for a really long time, I was like, but where are the ducks? Like, I don't see the ducks. And who actually put the duck in a row? But like, I'm a literal bit literal. So, This is the motivation for competence. Yes. Yes, it is. And people are going to want to follow you to the ends of the earth and not in the stalkery way. So Editors, please do not edit this out. Um, how how do they find you? The best way to find me and the easiest way to say is ed at iopimedical.com. Easy to remember because we've talked about IOP several times. You can go to their website and you can find me there. You can actually click on a link and set up a time to meet with me, a phone call, a Zoom meeting. That's my job working for IOP is to be a consultant to people who are treating patients. So you can actually put yourself on my schedule. And I love it. I don't have all the answers. I don't know everything, but I am happy to help look at what you have or what you need. And I'm happy to research the literature for you to you know try to help find answers for you and give you ideas and just be a sounding board to bounce ideas off of. 
this is, again, what wakes me up every day, thinking that maybe I have something to contribute that could help someone eat. People call me and say, I'm sorry to bother you. And I'm like, you just don't understand. This is what I live to do. This is what makes me breathe. You are not bothering me. Y'all, he's genuinely like this. Trust me. Every single time I meet him, he is this joyful and this spot on. So, Ed, thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I've been looking forward to talking to you. And I can't wait until this pandemic is over and we're in the same place at the same time when we can just sit down and have a dinner and laugh and share stories and talk for a long time. Yes. And I totally want to see pictures of the additional grandchildren because <laughs> I can, I mean, you've hit that two-year window and it's right about the time they turn two that parents are like, it wasn't that bad. We could do it again. <laughs> and then morning sickness happens and like, what the hell were we thinking? <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, I digress. Okay. Folks, as always, follow us on First Bite Podcast on Instagram. Check out the First Bite Facebook page. You can catch all the show notes and the lovely references that he's given when you log into your speechtherapypd.com account. Everything for better or for worse will be transcribed there, including all of the jokes. And we love it when you hop on First Bite Podcast on Apple Podcast and hit us up with some five stars and leave us a kind review. And y'all, we are almost to the one-year anniversary of Chasing the Swallow Truth Science Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders being published. And I do believe that Aaron and I are having a lovely little way to celebrate. So please be sure to check out the First Bite podcast Instagram account to celebrate my non-birthed baby being one. (laughs) Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. (laughs) 
Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures... All right, so I receive compensation for first bite presentations as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders, that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye.